Success, is it really a secret? I don't think so. Join me as I interview guests from different cultures and backgrounds who have overcome incredible challenges to create the life they live today. Thousand likes, celebrity status, lots of money or big cars, these are things that come and go and do not define true success. So what is it? And most importantly, how do we create it? If you are a child, teen, or adult trying to understand how to achieve this word, then you are not alone and you won't want to miss a single episode of The Secret to Success Isn't So Secret. This is Christy Maggio, and the key is right here. It's not a great secret, so don't just listen. Learn and take action. This morning, I have with us uh, Dr. Paul LeBlanc from, he is the president of Southern New Hampshire University, as well as uh, a great many other uh, accolades to his name. Um, welcome, Dr. LeBlanc. I'm very happy. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to join you all. This is an audience that I don't typically get to speak with, so I'm really excited about this opportunity. So let me just sort of set the stage more broadly for where higher ed today. It's going through enormous change. I often liken this to um, climate change. Um, so we know that where we sit in our ecosystem, or depending on where we are, what our ecosystem is, the ecosystem of New England is different than the Southwest, different than the Southeast. Where we are in that um, has an enormous impact. It's going through enormous change right now. And then when you're in the middle of it, it's kind of hard to make sense of it. Like this heat wave, is this climate change? It is obviously, but is it climate change or is it just an anomaly? And what's gonna be different as the climate now heats up and becomes more volatile? So I'm gonna stay with this metaphor one minute more, stay with me. So if you think about climate change in this respect, in the ecosystems, those parts of the ecosystem that once flourished will struggle, right? We know that that which once struggled will will sort of flourish and then there will be new players there'll be new entrants into that space um and some of those entrants will be good for the ecosystem and some of them will be bad for the ecosystem what we call invasive species for example so that's happening in higher ed right now we're seeing big changes and the traditional sense we had of the ecosystem of higher ed now looks different. So what's different about it? Well, we're going to see schools that were before doing fine, really struggling. So we see closures and it's getting reflected particularly with non-selective private institutions. Um, a lot of publics are struggling if they're not the better known ones. Um, we see the impacts of the recession changing student behavior. So low income communities have been hit very hard. Um, one of the ways we know kind of who's in the pipeline is the completion of FAFSA forms. This is a federal financial aid form that everyone has to fill out. We've seen a dramatic drop in FAFSA completion in Title I high schools. So these are high schools in very low-income communities. So that tells us that we're going to lose a lot of students coming into the higher ed ecosystem. It's a terrible problem. Um, we see new providers. So it's everything from Grow with Google, which is offering free credentials. And they have 150 major employers who say that they will honor those credentials and, and look at hiring people who have now a credential that is an alternative to a college degree. And we know college degrees are critically important. We know that there is, over the course of a lifetime, a genuine wave differential. But we're now starting to think, well, maybe you don't start with a college degree. Maybe you get one of these micro-credentials. And by the way, if you haven't heard, micro-credentials, these are certifications, these are short-term programs, these are coding boot camps. 
there are now almost a million micro credentials in the marketplace. I mean, so this is not this is not a small thing. This is a big thing. Um, maybe that's a pathway. And we have new providers, so there are colleges and universities. But you might also do something with IBM Skills Build. You might decide to um, get your certifications through Salesforce's Trailhead um, and become a Salesforce administrator, which pays very, very well and creates opportunities for you. So the ecosystem is changing very quickly. Um, and, and I think if you're a prospective student, if you're looking at what's my pathway, you actually will have more options. Um, some things are going to be as hard as they ever were. So if you want to go to an elite university, let's say one of the Ivy Leagues, that's becoming nearly impossible. They are flooded with applications. But there are only a handful of those, and they don't count for very many students in the end. If you take a look at the whole of higher education, the Ivy Leagues, the sort of most famous institutions, are a small number. Most people can't name more than 25 or 30 out of 4,000 institutions, right? So, so they're gonna be crazy, but everything else becomes more possible. If you're looking at private institutions that are not at the very top of the pyramid, they're going to be more affordable. They're going to, they're going to make that possible through merit aid, through discounting, what we call discounting. But if you're a student who's looking at those schools, you really wanna press on the question of, what will my out-of-pocket cost be every year what will my debt be after I graduate? And you need to be satisfied by those answers. And it's not that everyone should leave without any debt. It's a question of what earnings you'll have, what kind of jobs you'll have. So if you want to be an elementary school teacher, you should leave with little debt because you'll never get paid the same as you would. And by the way, if this is your calling and that's okay with you, that's fine. But but just have to be aware of it and not have debilitating amounts of debt. If you um, want to study computer science and be a software engineer, you probably can handle 10, 15, 20, $25,000 worth of debt because your salary is going to be so high. So you have to think about this in, in more than the kind of simplistic terms of debt or no debt. Um, you really need to look at what's my out-of-pocket and then how much debt will I carry relative to what my job prospects will be and the kinds of jobs I want to do. So these are, these are things to, for you to consider. But all of that, because schools are struggling, because many of them are struggling to fill their seats, they're going to be doing deeper discounting and really working hard to get students to come. And that really puts students more in the driver's seat than they've been in a long time. But I wanna go past the question of cost and say, um, there, are two, there are other things for you to consider as you look at this question. One would be, is it college? And again, eventually you want your degree. Don't be fooled by the, you can do great in life without a degree. Those are the exceptions. The data is clear on this. So people love to point to a Bill Gates, but unless you're Bill Gates, unless you have Bill Gates' background in money and brains, that's not many of us. You probably need to get that college degree to make a difference. And in fact, not having a post-secondary degree 30 years ago, wasn't the problem it is today. 30 years ago, you could get a job, a good union job, paying good wages, buy a house, send your kids to college. I know you don't think about having kids or a house right now, but you could do that. Today, that's less and less likely, and that's very clear in the data. So you need post-secondary education, but you might, need, you might not need to get a college degree immediately. What you need to do is think about a pathway, a journey. So 
the ability to sort of enroll in a two-year associate's degree program or four-year bachelor's degree program is a privilege, right? It means that you have enough resources and money to take that time. But you might instead enroll in a six-month or a nine-month bootcamp program and become a UX designer or a software engineer or cybersecurity specialist and get that first job and then now move into a different pathway. And what we see is an absolute war for talent in these high-demand areas. And if you can get that first job, it's quite likely that your employer will help you pay for the rest of your education, or at least a good portion of it. So now you start to change the cost equation. And there's a lot of conversation now around earn while you learn models. So if you take a look at companies like Walmart, right, which is not a place that you think about as kind of a place where a great opportunity, right? People settle for these jobs that are kind of in retail, but Walmart partners with us and now their, um, their employees get a free education. And we've got thousands of Walmart employees who are working full-time for Walmart and getting a degree um, and, and making opportunity available. Uh, we do this with um, one of our programs, we have a program called Kenzie Academy. So it's, it offers coding, um, shorter term programs in UX design and software engineering. We work with Amazon and with their warehouse workers. So they're making, you know, 15, 18, 20 dollars an hour working in Amazon warehouse. I don't want to pretend that that's a easy job, but now Amazon is making available to them these short-term programs that allow them to get a software engineering job and move up in Amazon and move out to a place where they can do better for themselves and their family. So we're seeing this earn while you learn models emerge in really interesting ways. And employers are now becoming a major part of that changing ecosystem. We didn't think about employers in the past. It was college, and then employers that came after. Like, that's what you worried about later on. But today, they're part of the equation, and you should take, you know, you should think about that um, as, again, depending on your circumstances, depending on your goals and desires, um, if that's the best option for you, these become very viable. You're not giving up on your college dream if you choose to go down one of these paths. The other dimension I would suggest to you to look at and really think hard about is, in the past, we used to think about a college degree as a, as a sort of body of knowledge, and then would send you off in the world assuming that you'd figure out the skills. Today, so much of education is focused now on skills, demonstrable skills that employers want and that are valuable. Um, and these are hands-on skills. So software engineering is an example I just used, or UX design, can you do it? Can you write in the programming languages that are necessary? Can, you know, does, your, does your code compile? You know, all of these things that are sort of very practical, but employers really care about what we sometimes call soft skills, which is a weird thing because they're hard, right? And the hard and the soft, the so-called soft skills are things like critical thinking, creativity, working in teams, working with people different than you, right? We're all gonna work in an interconnected, technological, globally connected world. We have to be able to navigate difference. Um, so, so you really wanna think about programs and options that give you those kinds of hands-on skills that allow you to um, show or demonstrate what you've learned or what you're learning. Many of those will now actually say, hey, if you come to us with a lot of these skills already in hand, we're gonna be able to assess that and even give you credit. We can get, give you a jump on the completion of your degree. Um, but um, you know, what you may wanna look at is, you know, I wanna know about this program, how much of it is hands-on, how much of it is project-based learning as opposed to exams and papers, you know, the kind of traditional way that you were always taking taking assessments. You might have a particular interest in kind of entrepreneurial programs. So is this a program 
that lets me roll up my sleeves and actually build something and try things, try things new. So we have a number of these programs at Southern Hampshire University in which uh, students come in and it's less about going you know, from class to class to class the way you did in high school and more about working project teams, doing real world projects. So for, I'll give you just one example and lots of places. So this is not an ad for SNA2, but we have students in our game design program and in game design, um, they're actually, they operate like a business. So a lot of what they do is not in a class structure. It's actually, they call it Inkwell Studios. That's the name of the business. Um, and they actually take real world projects. So they, students in that, in that business will move through and full, fulfill different jobs. You may work in music, you may work on design architecture, you may work on animation, you may work on client relations because you want to have that skill before you graduate. And in one case, they built a simulation for Boston Children's Hospital. So, you know, a world famous uh, hospital. And they didn't want a game, they wanted a simulation that would allow new nurses to practice their skills in the emergency room. You don't want people learning those skills when a baby is, in, on, you know, is on the table in an emergency where everyone's freaking out and the alarms are going off and there's huge pressure. You wanna be able to do that first in a simulation. Our students built that simulation and they treat it like they would a real client um, and the students loved it. And when I, you know, I was talking to them and saying, you know, would you do all of your learning in this kind of model, this hands-on simulation of a real business, or do you like some of your learning in a traditional classroom? They were they were completely clear about this. I don't want I don't want a traditional classroom. What's interesting is when I talk to students who are looking at their college choices that oftentimes their frame of reference is their high school. Like, well, it's got classes and it's got a schedule. I have to be at a certain place at a certain time. But lots of colleges are branching out from that. I would urge you to ask, ask better questions and ask about their project-based learning. Ask about hands-on real-world learning. Ask about the you know, integration of internships. Um, sometimes we talk about triple threats. So triple threat graduates, which is what you should aim to be, uh, whether you do a college degree all at once or you do it over time in a pathway, the triple threat, threat graduates are people who have done at least two internships, not just one, but they, have, they start to build a real resume with real skills and real workplaces. They have done real world projects. So I can show you a thing I built. I can show you a marketing plan. I can show you a game I designed. Um, I can show you a business plan that I created and, and, and even launched in my local community. Um, and, and they can do, the, and they will have done work that is prolonged. In other words, you can dig in and do a complex, hard thing over time. So not a little project you did in one of your five classes, but a project that took all year and consumed almost all of that year, right? Because that's what they're looking for. They're looking for people who can really dig in, sustain the effort, do complex things and demonstrate success. So triple threat graduates. And you want to think about programs and places that help you build that track record. Will I be able to show real work? Will I do substantial work over time? Um, will I be engaging in real workplaces? Those are the things that really make you so much more attractive and valuable as you think about the next chapter after your learning. So Christine, I'm gonna pause there because we're coming up on about 20 minutes of me blabbing along here mm -hmm. and happy to take questions or uh, questions that others might have. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Matt, do you have any, anybody in the room on Clubhouse have any questions for, for Dr. LeBlanc? I think um, what you said, I like the whole idea of 
the the triple th threat that you had um, just mentioned is is really important. And I think what we're looking at so much is that um, you know competency, performance based. Because I think at the end of the day, um, whether you're coming out of high school or you're coming out of college, theory is great, but but then when you have to go and put it in practice, and as a teacher, I, I mean, I can certainly say that, um, you know, six weeks of, um, of doing, you know, student teaching, where usually you're not even teaching, you're doing like right. busy work for the teacher, um, is not enough time to really get that knowledge and practice in order to even to do your own um, to, 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 to run your own classroom, so to speak. So, so. let me give you an example, Christy, of something like to your point, uh, our school of education, recognizing that students would come that land on campus that start their school year with us. And sort of once they're settled in, they'd move into their practicum out in the local schools. And of course we end in May and they would go home. Well, the reality of a school year for kids in K-12 is that they started before our students arrived. Their school year went into June. So we just like, wait a minute, our students don't even get what a full year looks like. They're gonna go out into a world, right? So if you're an education student with us, you actually come earlier. Mm -hmm. We do our classes in the schools. So you're, not, you're, at, you're, you're at school every day and you go till June, till that school year ends. So you get a full cycle of that year and you are immersed in this world in which you think you want to work. And it, it's really been very powerful. And what's interesting about it is the principals love this. They're like, finally, I'm getting someone out of an ed school who knows what a school year looks like. Mm -hmm. right? To your point, it's six weeks or it's a semester, or even if it's a whole college year, that's not the same as a K-12 year, which is longer. Right. Um, and they're not just dropping in and parachuting in. They're like walking down the hall, they're logging in, they're taking their classes, but they're seeing the kids, right? They're engaged. Mm -hmm. So that's another good example of, again, education kind of grounded in the actual work. Yeah, I love that. I love that because I don't think in, in anything that that kids want to study today or young people want to study or adults want to study, it's that actual learning. Um, anybody in Clubhouse, uh, Matt, do you have anything you want to ask? You know, the question that I ask is we always – just do everything systematically we've whatever we've done historically how do we get people in education administrators to start to think about rethinking what they do from a new outcome so instead of just following the processes and, and dr leblanc just kind of said that is how do we get people to recognize there is a new type of outcome maybe it's not even a new type of outcome it's an outcome that needs to be thought of in a different way. A lot of the times, the, the way we do things today is because processes didn't have the technology that's in front of us. We have technology that is so advanced, yet our processes are outdated. How do we get people to rethink and not be afraid of changing what they do? I hope that's not too long of a no, not at all. I mean, you're asking that really an innovation question, right? Which is how do you change systems? How do you change institutions? And there's no one right answer for that. I think generally speaking, I put innovation in two different boxes. And I think I know the box you're really asking about. So there's innovation that allows us to keep doing what we're doing, but do it better. And that's really important. And education actually has lots of examples. I think we do pretty well as an industry 
in terms of applying technology and innovation to do what we do better. But you're asking the question, I think, is the second bucket, which is what if we don't want to just do what we've always done better? What if we want to change what we do? Like, how do you sort of change the rules of the game? And that's, you know, that's right out of Clay Christensen's work at Harvard Business School on disruptive innovation. And he would say, you kind of have to do it on the edges for a while. You can't change the thing from the, in, from the inside out. You have to kind of do it from out on the margins and then work your way back in. So this is where you think about institutions opening up kind of, you know, alternative programs, kind of option Bs, uh, which is, look at, this is the main sort of version of what we do. But I guess I've made some space over here to try some new things. And your job as a leader is to protect that space. Because if it's really new and different, the incumbent system is going to want to either incorporate it in its own image, like, nope, we're going to not let that foreign tissue kind of sit here. We're going to make it part of us. Or it'll want to spit it out. It's the way the body reacts to foreign, foreign bodies, right? Either spit it out or you incorporate it. So the job of the leader is to kind of protect that different thing and give it space to experiment, to learn, to iterate, to flourish, and then shine a light on its successes so that the main organization starts to emulate or integrate or mimic what you're trying to do. Sometimes you have to split it off as a, as a, as a sort of new entity that's kind of under the, under the umbrella of, but not controlled by the main entity. But you're talking about, you know, the problem, Matt, that we face is that we're in a regulated industry and this is harder to do in a regulated industry. So generally speaking, there's a, you know, an old expression that policy follows practice. You won't get the regulators to try to, they're not going to change policies in a way that you want to think about the future. They're going to want to show, they're going to want to see examples of the future that they can feel comfortable about and then make policy. So if you are committed to leading change, you have to do a really great job of transparency, sharing the results, letting policymakers see it, and then really working with them to create safe spaces for more experimentation and expansion of what you're doing. It's, it's a patient play. It doesn't happen overnight. You know, journalism changed overnight. The music industry changed overnight when, you know, file sharing, MP3s, and Napster came along. I mean, almost overnight. We're more like healthcare. Regulated, third-party payers, taxpayer dollars, state regulation, federal regulation, creditors. It's going to be, it's going to take longer. But it's happening in healthcare. Right. Right? I mean, a, a, the Affordable Care Act came along. And we now, you know, we still have hospitals, but we also have urgent care centers and minute clinics and telehealth is starting. Like healthcare is evolving. And so is higher ed. I mean, we have online, we have new providers that I talked about earlier. We have micro-credentials. We, we are moving in the direction. It's just going to take long, longer because of the nature of what we do. Right. right. I think a lot of it, too, is because of the sheriff. Like, like you just said, you know, it's the policy. It's all of the the bureaucratic, like the red tape that goes into it and, and everything else that comes along. That makes and remember, it with change comes winners and losers. Right. So the people who think they're going to either lose power or position or privilege or just don't like how they'll be impacted. They're going to fight these changes and they have powerful tools in a regulated industry. Which ultimately is really too bad because if it's something that you know is going to be better for the whole in general, but due to the power or ego struggle that they're they're looking at, you know, it's it's really sad that they would prefer to, you know, keep that power, their ego up in order it just to not change something that would be better for the whole, for the masses as a whole. Yeah. And what you're saying, ego, I would say is quite often greed. Right. Um, right. right. So if you take a look at 
there's no reason in the world for Americans to pay what they do for pharmaceuticals. The rest of the world doesn't do this. Europe doesn't do it. They're as advanced as we are. And yet we do this crazy thing, right? And that's just pure greed. Absolutely. And I couldn't agree with you more on that. And the healthcare system is something else that it's a whole other topic. But, you know, as far as far, the, the cost of that and what people have to pay for that, you know, it's a, a more than a trillion dollar industry. And, you know, there's no reason. Um, and But it's really the pharmaceuticals that are driving the healthcare system that ultimately why it's the, in the situation that it is. Yeah. But, and it is, and, you know, and we are analogous to healthcare. So I think there are lots of, you know, there are lots of big chunks of higher education that actually doesn't they don't mind the high tuition because the high tuition builds fancier buildings and allows mm -hmm. you to do other stuff and it's not a it's not an it's not an industry i i would argue i'm working on a book that's coming out next year and their sort of central argument is how can higher education learn to love students again because right now the way the industry works does not suggest to me that there's a deep abiding love of students right it's kind of like a cattle call they're coming in and they're coming out, right? And, yeah. and so with with that being said, you know, there's no real, you know, buy-in on the students or the caring is is as a whole in what they what they what the students do. And I think that that's also one of the things. So to close up and to finish here, I just want to ask one final question in that, you know, obviously I'm I'm very focused in the the youth and the in the high school area of it. What do you think so in your um opinion or in your experience do you think that like you said to make that change to do those experimental uh schools or experimental school years or experimental programs and then show the results to get people to buy into it yeah i mean i think that's the critical piece and it's happening all over right i mean it's really what the argument the best of our charter schools do this. They give you alternatives. Um, I think the best public high schools where they have more creative, innovative leadership are doing these sorts of things. I think there are interesting university partnerships that are happening. Um, you know, MIT has created a new school of education that's really all about competency-based approaches, including how they train school leaders and teachers. So it is underway. Um, and I think the challenge for young people right now is, how do I find those? If I want the alternative, how do I find it in high school? How do I find it and get it in, in post-secondary or college as well? And how would they find, and, and I think also when we're looking at the underserved populations as well, like, you know, there's only so much that they're being offered at that, you know, or choices that they have in that situation. So how do they access something better as well? other than changing their zip code. Because yeah, it's really interesting. You know, we had always thought with our big online operation that we were, you know, the quintessential online student was a 30-year-old with kids and a job. We have 30,000 young people now enrolled with us online. They're 17 to 22, right? Classic college age. And we thought, well, that's a change, right? But young people are looking and finding, to your question, they're finding, wait a minute, I don't have to be tied to simply the choices in this tight geography. I can look at online providers like SNHU or WGU, which is a competency-based program, or ASU, which, right? Like, I can think beyond geography now. And I think that's just going to be more and more common with a generation of students 
who are digital natives. They're used to sort of looking broadly for what they what they need and want. And I'm struck by a set of interviews we did with students in Los Angeles in one of our programs. So these are all students who are either homeless or have timed out of the foster care system. Mm. And they're in our competency-based program. They're inspiring young students. They all had the same, and they weren't in the same room. So they were saying the same thing. And it was as if it was, so it's obviously like in their zeitgeist. But they all said, I love learning. I hate school. Mm-hmm. Right. And they were looking for alternatives. And, you know, um, so I have a lot of trust in young people to help mm-hmm. guide the way on this question, actually, by, by voting with their feet and with their knowledge and their ability to find alternatives. I think it's very exciting. I love that. That's very, very positive, very hopeful. Anyway, thank you so much. I appreciate you so much. My pleasure. Thank, thank you so much. You. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye.